If you're like most of us, you go to sleep when conditions allow, and you get up when you have to get up. We all do it. When there's a time crunch, when there's stress, when the demands on our time require superhuman response, sleep is what gets the squeeze. In fact, we could be in the midst of a crisis of sleep deprivation, and it's impacting our health, our work, our relationships, and even our happiness. From PRJ Media, this is The Nutshell Podcast. This week, John spoke with Ryan about The Sleep Revolution, a book by Ariana Huffington of the well-known Huffington Post news site. She argues, especially in today's fast-paced, always-on world, we dismiss the importance of good sleep at our peril. Stay tuned to learn how technology is affecting our sleep, whether naps really are good for you, and how cherry juice, yeah, cherry juice, is a possible sleep elixir. All right, well, let's let's do this thing. And, and let's start off with the subject of the book, sleep. So I get it, sleep is important, but man, you know, as much as I'm trying to make it in this question, sleep isn't isn't exciting, you know? It's not full of conflict conflict. It's it's not like sexy. So look, you could have gone with inequality, our favorite subject here at the nutshell. Um but but you didn't. And the author, I think, sort of faced the same choice when she was choosing a subject to write about, right? It's a risky subject choice. So so tell me, Ryan, why should we care about a book about sleep? Well, I you know, I would actually respectfully deviate from what you are saying. It better be respectfully. And I'm using deviate as a euphemism for disagree, John. <laughs> That it's a risky choice. In fact, uh, I don't think this is a risky choice if your goal is to sell books and to talk about a subject that everybody cares about because it relates to everybody. So I think that she knows what she is doing. And may, and maybe you're right that there's not a whole lot of drama baked into this. There aren't uh, winners and losers and, and necessarily big bad guys wrapped up into this whole thing. But Goldman Sachs has no effect over our sleeping patterns, well, right? They actually do mention Goldman Sachs in this book. Oh but my I am, god! We are going to stay away from that. Okay, I'll, I'll tell. You, I'm going to draw a red <laughs> line right there. They really are the vampire squid, man. They've got their tentacles everywhere. It, there's a mention. Okay, there's a couple sentences, but the, <laughs> but the the point here is that sleep is universal, right? And uh, this is something that anyone can relate to. It's a cool, it's a kind of a cool question. Like I love, I love when the subject of sleep comes up in conversation because it's such an, it's such an equalizer. It's uh, totally inoffensive to talk about. It's a way to let other people talk about themselves in a way that matters to them and in, in a way that really reflects on how, like how the last couple days the last week have gone for them if they're getting terrible sleep you know why it's just it's a great way to to open up those doors and um, what the author is saying in this book is that sleep is under attack and it kind of has been for the last let's say 150 years or so uh, it's under attack by modern society the way that we have organized our society and the increasingly the way that technology is uh putting extra demands on our time, which are getting in the way of sleep. You know, just while you were saying that, um, I, I was thinking about sleep being an equalizing subject and, and you're exactly right. I hadn't, I really had not thought about it like that before. Um, so many times just at school, uh, I can connect with students by saying, you know, I, I'm tired today. I didn't get a lot of sleep. And you're right, it, it's totally inoffensive. I mean, there's tons of things that we all do every day that, 
you know, we can't talk about. We don't talk about our bowel movements or anything like that. Most and, of us don't. Yeah. <laughs> most. It's not polite subject matter, right? So yeah, yeah, that's that's insightful, Ryan. That's that's why I talk to you. Um, so thank you for that. You are very welcome. <laughs> but but look, Ariana Huffington, right? She is this mega blogger. Um, she's done other things. She's she, I mean, she ran for governor of California, right, against Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger back in '04 or something, '03. Right? I had forgotten yeah, about yeah. that. Okay. And and I believe, don't quote me on this, okay, but I believe she ran for the Senate seat in California at one point as well. Um. Anyway, my point being, look, she could write a book, and she has written books about other things. She could write a book about anything. What's the deal with Ariana Huffington writing a book about sleep? How is this even possible? Yeah, so she she has a an origin story for this book. She, like a lot of people, um, had been getting burnout at work, and this uh, she had an incident that happened when she was starting the Huffington Post. A lot of people will know this website. Um, and uh, she was, you know, burning the candle at both ends. Uh, she was making sacrifices in a lot of areas, and she was just uh, sleep was getting squeezed out. It was the one thing that she had control over as all these other demands on her time increased, and she wasn't sleeping enough, and it was getting bad. And one day she walked into the office, and she collapsed from exhaustion, and she Ooh, smacked okay. her head on the desk and woke up in a puddle of blood basically how okay yeah all right that's so that's she, pretty graphic yeah so she so she had this uh she had this moment of awakening like whoa there is a problem here for me in my situation and then she started to dig into it and she went on to give a ted talk about this as famous people do when things happen to them right and uh and after that she said people just come up to me and say hey, the same thing happened to me. You know, this is also an issue for me. She says, I am I am now like the pain, the patron saint of sleep deprivation. So, <laughs> so although she is not an expert in this field, she has a deeply personal connection that's driving her to learn as much as she can. Well, there, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think that that's, probably a pretty motivating force to to want to research a subject i mean not waking up in a puddle of blood is about as motivating as as any force that there is That'll right do it, yeah but there's another side to this um and my question is you know sleep is is a scientific at least ostensibly subject it's a it's a technical topic and when i read a book about something like that you know, I, I want this expert or an academic or, or someone who really knows their stuff, who spent many, many years studying this to hold my hand through the topic, you know, guide me through the scientific literature. But she, to the best of my knowledge, is no scientist at all. I mean, she's extremely intelligent. She's successful. Um, she is, I, I've heard her speak. I mean, she's, she's a great speaker very logical but she's not a scientist or a psychologist even to my knowledge so you know does this book satisfy that technical expert need that people like me have no you are looking for a different book john <laughs> this <laughs> glad you read this one then <laughs> this is uh this is a uh this is a book that is created for impact you get the sense that this is something the author cares deeply about. She wants to impact as many people's sleep habits as possible. And um, she does not dwell on uh, scientific details that are going to scare off that mass market. And, and mm, get, okay. she wants, this is a teaser. Uh, it's, okay. Think of it as a long blog post by... Uh, by a friend who's talking to you in terms that you can understand it it's not has has very little it references scientific literature and if you want to go down those rabbit trails you can but it is uh you're not you're not going to find more than a couple of paragraphs about any individual study yeah so it's my problem then um 
And, and and truth be told, you know, if I read that book that I was describing, I probably wouldn't understand it anyway. So, um, so this one's this one's probably better suited for people like me anyway. But that being said, look, I'll I want to be really honest with you here. I would not pick this book up. I wouldn't pick it out. I wouldn't do a show on it. I actually wouldn't even listen to it. I don't think. Um, and that's not only because of what I just said about. Uh, Huffington not being an ex- expert. I mean, really, to be honest, to be frank, I found books like this before fluffy, you know, full of fluff, kind of just right into right in a lot of cases. So let's let's get this out of the way early. I mean, is this book even worth reading? First of all, uh, the value of the information in the book is good. Uh, okay. But a lot of it, good. you will find yourself nodding your head and saying, yeah, I heard that from, you know, my grandma. This is, this is, a lot of this stuff is common. <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> that's the best sell that I've heard ever. <laughs> get your, get your book about sleep. It's full of common grandma wisdom. The, but, but look, humans have been sleeping for a long time, John, and we have a lot of passed down knowledge and wisdom uh, that is in a lot of cases repeated in this book. Um, now, I think what's interesting here is that there is a cohesive theory and history of sleep and what's happened to it and what's happening to it now in the 21st century that the author is presenting. So this, to me, is is appealing. Um, but I think a lot of this you could get from a quick skim of the book, um, looking at the book jacket maybe, or listening to a podcast about about it. So um, the, the other thing is, it, you mentioned fluff. You know, she she writes in a way that is, it's like a friend. It's like a, a Wikipedia entry. Maybe it's it's very um, uh, easy to to approach, but it's kind of too approachable. Like she she references somebody she found on an Amazon review. Well, to to be fair, I I mean I've done that in this show before. So, I mean don't don't hate on that so much. Although this isn't a book, okay. We don't know if these are even real people writing these reviews, Sean. <laughs> That's so true. My my point is this this just it, it isn't the kind of thing where you come away with a lot of confidence about this about the sources. However, the big picture stuff from the author and some of the some of the tidbits that she gives about sleeping, if you have trouble sleeping, are good and are interesting. So, you know, ext- what we'll do and, and, and there is interesting stuff in here uh, is extract some of that good stuff. OK, well, I mean, that sounds good. Look, we'll have a big, big pit- picture talk. We'll get the details that are important that uh, you found that were were most relevant and hopefully, you know, based in in fact and reality. But continuing with the big picture talk, let's get right down to it. How much sleep are we not getting and how much should we be getting? The the important number here is 40% of people in the US and I'll talk about global populations in a second. Um, are getting less sleep than they need. Uh, okay. And, and the minimum recommended uh, amount of sleep is seven hours per night. For Is that for adults? I, I, I know that there's some range there, but that's for like an average human adult. Y- yes, an average human adult, excluding lions okay. and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I'm glad that the book isn't talking about the sleep patterns of lions, although that may be interesting. I'm just not sure if I would read it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's that one's getting it's a little bit niche, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you're you're totally right. So it, right, it depends on uh, how old you are. If you are um, our age, John, you're how old are you? I don't want to divulge that information on the internet. Are Look, you it, are you twenty six to sixty four? Yes. Okay. Uh, so you need seven to nine hours of sleep, according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Okay. And and that and that number will will go down a little bit as you get sixty five plus. And when you were a teenager, you needed eight to ten hours of sleep. And of course, mm. you didn't get that. 
I never got. Well, I don't. I don't want to say never, but I barely ever got that. I, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm getting seven to to nine now, or you know, maybe I get seven on a good night during the week. I I'd say six and a half is about is about like an average number. Maybe six and a half to seven. So great. I'm sleep deprived. Uh, I guess maybe we all are, according to that stat, or not all of us, but forty percent of us, and. And I get that. That makes sense from just my conversations with people. And I also get, and I understand that the consequences of that are, are serious, right? But as you were mentioning before, like, isn't the solution to this simple? You know, sleep more. Um, I know we'll get into the details later, but can you kind of like make that a little bit more nuanced for us? What's causing our lack of sleep? Yeah, there's a couple of trends to be aware of here, um, and a lot of a lot of what what gets headlines, and a lot of what I think people are familiar with are uh, technological changes, cell phones, right? Right, um, right, right. right. So, so, so many of us will, and I think a lot of people acknowledge this today. You know, let's not have the cell phones in the bedroom. We don't want distractions as we're trying to sleep. Um, a lot of people are aware of. Uh, of the the um, light from from laptops and stuff having uh, having an adverse effect on your ability to get to sleep. Um, blue light, yeah, blue light. The blue light, yeah. So a lot of this stuff is um, is coming into public consciousness, but part of this is also um, psychology and societal expectations. Um, the, you know, how many how many times have you asked somebody? Uh, how they're doing, and they said, you know, I, I'm just slammed. I am so busy. Yeah, I, I tend to say that, but even when I'm not slammed, just so I can save face. Yeah, right. We, you know, we want to. Uh, nobody wants to sound like they're not doing anything. Um, yeah, and and sometimes when I don't want to take out the trash, but I I hope that people who actually care about that don't listen to this. But okay, yeah, but <laughs> certain, but yeah, the point is, yeah, I get people. It. A certain someone, yeah. Um, so, so look, uh, as as uh, the the in the author's view, as as technology uh, continues to infiltrate our lives, and as work demands grow, and she's if you have a family on top of that, and you're getting home and ha- and having to have all these other responsibilities, what gets squeezed out is sleep because that's something that you can sure. control you can you can make it for a few nights on uh, a pittance of sleep and uh and maybe it won't catch up with you um so yeah a- i mean you, you can function right you can you can survive the day um but i mean there there has to be some consequence to that i mean what are a few of the consequences of of you know having these four nights a week where you're not getting enough sleep and having that be a perpetual habit here, so here's something I was surprised to read. Uh, 24 hours without sleep is equivalent to a blood alcohol level of 0.1%. So if that How were, many beers is that? You can't, in most states, drive at that level. Okay. You know, 0.08% is uh, 0.08 blood alcohol level in North Carolina, for example. You can't legally drive. So the, wow. the, the okay. point being, and, and I think people who are, for example... Um, pilots are very familiar with the impact of sleep on your ability to perform. So, um, right. you know, no sleep equals poor judgment. Um, and that's, that just is, is the case, particularly if you're stacking multiple nights of, of little sleep on top of each other. Another angle is missing potential. So if you are dropping sleep, you are in effect um, removing cheating yourself out of potential that you could have had because what happens during sleep is as scientists are increasingly figuring out is you know we're not we're not just uh closing our eyes and shutting everything down and then boom six or eight hours or whatever later we're we're up again uh, and everything switches back on um uh, we are we are renewing our our brain and we're kind of it's kind of like uh one scientist described it as a dishwasher effect right um okay you're, you're kind of running your brain through the dishwasher you're cleaning out all um all the mess and there's and there, there's actual like not just not just ideas and fragments of thoughts there's there's actual like proteins and stuff that you that your that your brain is flushing out of areas where they don't need to be so there's 
there's real real stuff that's happening in there and is and beyond the fog that i think um all of us know after getting a a uh, very little amount of sleep the next day and just sort of struggling through that and, and trying to fight it off with with coffee just the obvious effects mm. there's the there's there's the ones that uh, that just hamper our ability to learn and and our retention and our memory. So we're we're we're, we're reducing our ability to do all of those things. Well, I think I mean a lot of that hit home for me, but uh, the that last part, the ability to learn, I I feel that the days that I don't get sleep. I can't think through problems clearly. I can't hold information in my mind for long. Uh, my working memory seems to just shut down. That makes sense. That That's sort of intriguing yet scary, startling at the same time. But okay, let, let's take it back, Ryan. Let's take it way back. You know me, I'm always interested in the backstory, the context, in the history, right? And one of the chapters of the book is sleep throughout history so look i'm not going to ask you to trace the evolution of sleep throughout you know the entirety of human history for us but if you could indulge us with a little bit of tracing starting at the time right before the industrial revolution and up to now how have our sleep habits changed and our thinking about sleep evolved during this time yeah, so uh, so, and I'm even I'm going to take it back and and don't get scared off because this will be just a second. But even back to the to the Greek and Roman days, right? Oh uh, man, that's yeah. like two thousand something years. Yeah, okay, it's like take crazy it long ago. Um, yeah. but but the reason I'm uh, reason I want to bring this up is the author the author loves to attribute good practices to humans in earlier periods of our existence. Um, hmm, that that might be problematic, but okay. Well, you can tackle that later. We'll we'll see what you think. <laughs> but um, uh, sleep sleeping in Greek and Roman times, for example, didn't have this same negative implication. It, it you know if you were wealthy, for example, um, leisure was good, and you could spend a lot of time sleeping and like eating grapes and stuff, right? That uh, sounds great to me. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Okay, you'd be down with that. Um, yeah, and, you know they had gods for sleep. Uh, the Greeks had a god called Hypnos. Um, so th- there, and there was a lot of magical, mystical power that that people ascribe. They didn't. They didn't entirely. Not that we fully understand sleep at all now, but um, but we we kind of have some scientific tools to tackle it. Um, for the philosophers of the day, it was such. It was this this incredible, mysterious thing, and and the Greeks thought that it was this this middle state between life and death that's how they looked at it so so flash forward to to uh, the industrial revolution so so jump forward a couple thousand years here right that's a few times of hitting the 30 second plus button on my phone but yeah it's yeah you, you be there for a while doing that <laughs> <laughs> and we aren't we just talking about how phones are a problem john get that out of here oh sorry let me put it down yeah please. Okay. okay all right all right i'm back I'm okay back. Uh, so, so here is the big thing about the industrial revolution. You have all of a sudden, after all of these centuries of normal sleep patterns, uh, quote unquote, human normal sleep patterns, um, you have light. So it used to be that when you, you were ready to sleep, things would be dark anyway, because it's nighttime. And you wouldn't have a whole lot of distractions or maybe excuses to try to be productive after the light, uh, the lights had gone out and darkness had fallen. But all of a sudden, now it's the Industrial Revolution. You've got light going on. We are, you know, there's this philosophy arising that we we can control the elements and and we can control, our, you know, man can control his destiny and and harness nature and all all this stuff. And on top of that, you've got industrial industrialization itself in which um, humans and their labor are inputs into a process to produce value for the owner of the company and in that context sleep is just something that is not profitable 
and it yeah. needs to happen as little as it can because it is a waste of time. So this is this is the beginning in the author's framing of where our problems with sleep start. All of a sudden, uh, we are we are no longer when we're sleeping doing something that's magical and mystical and ancient and and useful. Right um, now, it's a waste of time. Capitalism ruins everything. I thought you'd right? like that. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Very Baconian in in that explanation as well about the Industrial Revolution and, and man's thought about the world and how he could dominate. But okay, look, you got on me about my phone, but I'm gonna I'm gonna share a fun fact that I found in the book with you. And it's going to prove that some people are a little bit worse than I am, okay? 60% of the people around the world have slept holding their mobile phone, unquote. Look, I'm not part of that 60%, Ryan. I mean, really? Falling asleep with your phone in your hand? Come on. All right, all right. Look, I I have my phone with me at night, as I think you and most people probably do too right now. Uh, At least the people who have phone. And I've heard some bad things about that blue light that we were talking about earlier. You know, they can like disrupt our sleeping patterns. Um, and I think they can they can block the release of certain hormones that help us sleep. But I mean, is that all? Like, did Huffington add more to the science here? Yeah, the important thing to understand about this. And um, and by the way, just in case you're getting concerned, she does exclude e-readers from this nice okay yeah. so i can read my kindle at night free pass on your kindle man nice okay um, cool. but cell phones laptops ipads all that is out it produces blue light and to your body blue light looks like daylight so mm. what's happening is you are uh, your body is seeing this light and it's blocking the production of something called melatonin and melatonin right. is a hormone that makes you sleepy at night. So uh, what she describes is kind of a, uh, a cycle that keeps feeding itself where maybe you're trying to sleep, you can't sleep, you get up to be productive while you try to uh, get sleepier and you check your email or something. Mm. And then that, that feeds into that cycle and it becomes harder and harder to fall asleep. Well, can I just, can I buy melatonin in a pill form? Like I know you can, but... Is that okay here? What if I just wanted to use my cell phone, buy melatonin in pill form, take it, and have the best of both worlds? You can buy melatonin in pill form, and I have heard of people using that to tackle jet lag, uh, but I don't know that I would uh, I would approve it for recreational use, John. <laughs> All right. Not approved by the Surgeon General Ryan Kane. But okay, um... I have a bigger question here. What is our relationship with mobile devices and how does that impact our sleep habits according to Huffington? Yeah, so the the blue light is one thing, right? But other than that, it's still it's just kind of a mess in general. Uh, on top of the physical effects, the blue light, the melatonin, you're also talking psychological effects because when we have this world that's inside our smartphones that's at arm's length that we're you know we're laying down you're you're it's 11:30 or something you're trying to fall asleep you're scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or something you're looking at the news what you're doing is you're finding new stuff to get excited about or angry mm. about or have opinions yeah. about and all of that starts, uh, you, this is not a good time to be doing that right before you're trying to calm your mind and get yourself ready for sleep and for the new day. So so ra- rather than fill your mind with all of these emotions and stuff to get distracted by and to kind of bounce around in your head, why not not do that? Yeah. Well, I just shouldn't read anything before I go to sleep then. I mean, I definitely can't read Griftopia before going to sleep. I want to throw the the e reader, the Kindle, at the 
at the wall when I'm reading about Goldman Sachs, you know, ruining my life. I thought about this too. You know, I, I do wonder, I do wonder the extent to which books, which are also portals into other worlds, of course, um, I can say as a supporter of books on this podcast. We are supporters of books is a very bold statement going where no man has gone before. Part of the reason, and possibly the main reason we do this podcast, is because you and I value learning, we value thinking, we value knowledge, right? Am I right here? You're right, John. We value those things. So, you know, a possible mantra for us could be, the world is complex, it's worth understanding. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, in one of Huffington's chapters, she makes the argument that if you value your brain, quote, get more sleep. As someone who may not get enough sleep, me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of startled by this. I, I want my brain to function at high capacity, maximum capacity. So can you kind of explain this for me? Can you can you scare me even more? about how I'm not getting enough sleep and how my brain isn't functioning properly? Oh, I'll scare you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bring it on, Ryan, bring it on. So so this is an extreme example, John, but it shows you what happens uh, at different levels of less and less sleep. The, the author talks about a, a case where a disc jockey was doing one of those fun things where you're trying, it's a, it's a fundraiser. He was going to stay up a long time and just keep spinning discs and spinning tracks and raise a bunch of money for the March of Dimes. And, uh, and he was doing this in public in Times Square. And, uh, and the, the idea was he was going to stay awake for eight days. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't know anything about this topic scientifically, but I bet that's a bad idea. Sounds like a bad idea, right? Yeah. yeah, you you and and as and maybe your six and a half hours of sleep last night wasn't quite enough, but you're not really in this guy's danger category, right? Okay, um, I hope not. Not not quite, but um, but what they found is that uh, this lack of sleep, this level, that after three days, uh, this guy became just a different person, mean and abusive, and by day five he was uh, undergoing intense hallucinations and paranoia. Um, his body temperature dropped, and they put him, it looked like he was awake at this point, right, day five or six, um, but they put him in a machine that scanned his brain, and although he was awake, his brain and the waves generated by his brain looked like it was asleep. So, so this is an example, just to shock you, of why it seems like um, maybe one night with a couple hours of sleep is okay. And while you're not going to go on a five-day uh, wake-a-thon like this guy did, um, it is conceivable that, and plenty of people do this, uh, that you're going to stack you know, two or three almost sleepless nights in a row. Uh, people do that all the time and, and just power through it. And, and you are not going to show up in a brain scan as being asleep when you're awake at that level, but you are going to get ornery and mean and your performance is going to decrease. So I guess I should just get more sleep before I turn into this like raging animal that destroys people and myself. Yeah, man. Come on. You don't want to be the Hulk. <laughs> okay. Let, let's talk about like the positive aspect of sleep. One of the positive aspects of sleep, at least to me, dreams. You know, I, I like dreams. I love to dream. Um, not just when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep. Yeah. But here's the thing. 
to me, they don't really fit intuitively into a book that, yeah, I know it's about sleep, but it's one making a case for us to get more sleep. You know, dreams seem to be more of this byproduct of sleep, not this essential part of it. So am I missing something? You know, what, what role do dreams actually play in helping us while sleeping? Yeah, I mean, bottom bottom line, uh, the main thing is that you need to increase the volume of sleep, right? But one of the things that the author finds is that more and more um, studies are reversing what we thought we understood about dreams in the sense that per, there was a time where dreams were dismissed more. Today, that's not so much the case. You know, psychologists... And not just in the in a Freudian sense where you're sitting down and, and analyzing these things, but psychologists are looking at these and, and seeing them in different lights. You know, there there is a um, psychologist the author references from from Finland who uh, talks about something called the threat simulation theory, which is pretty cool. So this is the idea that you know why did dreams evolve? Why do we have them in the first place? Good question. I often wonder that myself. Yeah, and, and his theory is that this isn't just a random thing. It's part of an evolutionary defense that lets us play through, in a safe space, threatening situations and frightening events. And we can rehearse ah. how we might respond to those. Because it feels real. Because it feels real. And so, right. so when okay. we're eventually faced with a situation like that, and yeah, probably we're not going to be, you know, fighting off orange hulks in real life, like some nightmares might have us. But, um, when, when we're faced off with these situations, maybe we have, um, some instincts from, uh, that were generated in these dreams. Well, let me, let me interject here. That makes a lot of sense, man. You are, you are really giving me some good info to think about tonight because, you know, I, I obviously don't have dreams where I am chasing down, a, you know, some prey, and all the all of a sudden I become the prey, and I I, you know, fight off this lion or or find myself in that situation, and I have to react. But I have had situations and dreams that have put me in in bad situations in my modern life. Like you know, I can think of situations um, when I was in college or high school where I was you know offered like this cheat sheet for a test and and in my dream you know I either took it or I didn't but if I did take it I woke up in the morning I felt terrible you know I felt like I did you know I felt this this guilt inside of me this overwhelming guilt and and I can see now based on your description you know that that dissuades me from doing it in real life that's that feeling that's that real feeling that i had and and that sort of pushes me in the direction of making a a more ethical decision more um a decision based on positive consequences right because obviously even though i'm not going to die from cheating on a test well i could get kicked out of college or you know get kicked out of school which would be detrimental to, to my life in other ways. So that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And the test is, is a great example, actually. I'm glad you brought that up because the, the, the author talks about another study where a bunch of students, and med school students, were studying for their, uh, their finals or their boards or whatever, and, um, and they, they were observed while they were sleeping, which, by the way, this is always how sleep studies are done, and it's pretty weird. Like, imagine a researcher, you're in a cot, and the researcher's just kind of next to you looking at your eye movements. So anyway, that's that's an aside. Pretty yeah, weird. I can barely sleep in a hotel bed, so. Yeah, so anyway, uh, adjust for that in your study. But <laughs> yeah. uh, what they found was that these med school students, the ones who reported dreaming about the upcoming test did better on the test. And there are a couple of takeaways from that. One being that it's possible that as you're going through the information necessary for the test and condensing it and, and worrying about it as you dream, that it's helping you uh, uh, connect these synapses and, and getting you ready for the test. But it's also possible, and this isn't entirely clear from the study, that just freaking out in your dream about the test 
gives you a kick in the pants. So when you wake up, and this is kind of like what you're getting at, when you wake up, you're like, whoa, like that scenario that just played out where I failed the test was terrible. I am going to study all day. I did have a dream, speaking about synthesizing information, a few months ago where I was forced to describe why I was voting for Bernie Sanders as compared to Hillary Clinton. And I had to like narrow this down and I woke up and, and it was this eye opening literally and figuratively experience. You know, I said, Oh my God, that's it. That's the way that I'll always say it from now on. And I told my wife about it, you know, later on that day we were driving somewhere. I said, look, I had a dream last night. I found the perfect way to to convince people that you know Bernie Sanders in my opinion is a better candidate um so I mean yeah man you are like you are nailing all of this stuff you are connecting lots of things for me that I had never thought about before um at least not under I didn't understand it in in this in this more systematic or or you know meta way um but okay so so look I I've I've enjoyed this conversation so far but Really, I went into this conversation knowing that we would talk about this book, wanting some answers. I don't get enough sleep. You know, I'm I'm speaking for most people out there, I presume. At least 40%. At least 40%, if not more. Remember, that's a self-reported number, right? So... Help me, Ryan. Help us. How do we do it? How do we get more sleep? How do we master sleep? Where to start? Well, well, I, when should we get up, Ryan? When should we get up? This is, this is an easy one. No rules. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? No, you rules. Mean no rules. Whatever works for you, man. Uh, okay. This is one where the circadian rhythm really defines what you your body clock is is going to be doing and th- the easiest way to explain this is think about the difference between teenagers and adults um you know how painful was it to get up at 7 a.m when, when you were 15 versus it was now bad and and, and it's still not that great but yeah i get it, it it's getting better though right a little bit yeah yeah but but that but that same discrepancy you you've got these body clocks and and they can be different so there there is no magic number where 5 a.m or or 8 a.m is the best time to get up okay naps good or bad not good not bad john naps are <laughs> awesome <laughs> okay. naps are Man, awesome and I, th- I thought you were going all vague on me again and, and uh no this is this is highly specific the scientific literature agrees that naps are fantastic. And wow. the rule on this is if you have a bad night of sleep, take one. And uh, and I, I have pulled, and I want to share this with you, John, an, a kernel, a, a new phrase that I love from NASA. And the, what you got? the what phrase you got? is strategic naps. <laughs> <laughs> I thought <laughs> that's good, man. Um, and enhanced, enhanced rest periods. How about that? Yeah, you're right. Strategic naps <laughs> is is oddly pedestrian, so oddly easy to say for a NASA term, right? Um, but they yeah, they do studies. Yeah. On, I mean, obviously they have astronauts in odd conditions, and they're concerned about sleep, and they do studies on this stuff, and they like naps. Um, and there are other studies referenced in the book that basically say that. Uh, if you if you take a nap for 30 minutes in the course of a day after you got bad sleep, that can reverse um, the impact of that night of poor sleep. Ooh, so there's hope for me yet. Great. Okay, well, what about eating before bed? How late is too late? E- eating before bed is bad, John. Don't do it, and particularly don't eat spicy foods before bed. Um, or fatty foods. Uh, okay. The, these these are there are studies showing that eating spicy and fatty stuff before you go to bed uh, leads to poor sleep and disrupts sleep during the night. 
so so no late night sriracha and Italian sausage pizza. I see where you're going with this. Uh, no, man, you got to check that out right now. Okay. Or you did for breakfast. You know, I'm learning throughout the course of this show that I can't do anything fun anymore. <laughs> um, except nap. At least I don't have to give that up. No. All right, well, what what about drinking, Ryan? Um, and and I don't mean milk. I mean the good stuff. What about drinking? Well, I was I was I was hoping that you were asking actually about cherry juice. Was that is that mm. what you're referring to? No, unless you're referring to this cherry juice that I got in Lisbon called Ajinjinha, um, and that's the good cherry juice. That would be highly specific of me. Uh, <laughs> that does sound like good, but uh, uh, cherry juice. Uh, and I know you're talking about alcohol, and I will talk about that in a second. But this is too good to ignore, man. Apparently, wait are you, are you really gonna talk about cherry juice? Like oh, this is legit right believe now. Believe it or not, man, cherry juice <laughs> has a bunch of melatonin in it. So this is a cool takeaway from this book. Uh, there's a study by none other than the prestigious Louisiana State University. No comment. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, people, they studied a bunch of people drinking cherry juice. <laughs> I'm wondering where these guys get their funding. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I know. Who, who They drink a bunch of cherry juice, uh, a glass a day, twice a day for two weeks. And these people, compared with those who drank the placebo, the cherry juice people got 85 minutes more of sleep per night. That's a big number. Mm. So cherry juice helps. Uh, and that that's kind of the killer, the killer new thing that people are learning in the sleep field. But um, alcohol is troublesome, right? It's and it's kind of weird. It's not intuitive. It's not intuitive because you drink a beer too, and you feel kind of drowsy, right? I mean, do you feel drowsy sometimes? Yes, after after one beer, um, especially after I get home from work. Yeah, man, I'm ready to pass out. No matter the time, five o'clock, six o'clock, whatever. Yeah. So the the odd effect that alcohol has is that it can enhance this ability to fall asleep, but it gives you trouble in the second half of sleep. So sleep happens, but it gets more disruptive and the quality of your sleep goes down. Oh, man. Okay, okay. All right, well, tell me what I should or should not do before bed and don't tell me drink cherry juice. Man, way to, way to dictate terms. <laughs> <laughs> so so listen, here are the the key things that are going to work. Okay? It's not the new stuff, it's not the cherry juice. Uh these are tried and true. Um get your phone out of the bedroom. That's number 1. Um okay. it's it's disruptive, it's got blue light, it's bad. Number 2, um exercise, right? This cure all that keeps coming back. Uh, there are a lot of studies saying that this is the best non-pharmaceutical alternative to improve sleep. So if you're considering, if if things are rough with your sleep, you're considering, hey, I might get a, I might get a pill. It might help. Try amping up exercise. Try just making yourself exhausted because that can help. And I think all of us have had that experience where you come back from a workout and you're just ready to pass out. Uh, and what what is recommended is 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise. So that could even include, you know, walking kind of fast. Um, <laughs> the best, best exercise there is walking kind of fast. Kind of fast, not too fast. Yeah, yeah um, not too fast. Don't have a nightcap, you know, don't drink right before bed. And, um, and, and here's the final thing. If you try all of this stuff and it's still hard to get to sleep, don't, don't force it. Um, if, if it's been 20 minutes, stop struggling and switch to something else, you know, try, try reading a book, something without blue light. Yeah. And I can recommend one right now. Griftopia by Matt Taibbi. All Go right. Hey, stay in your own episode, man.
Okay, Ryan, so now is the time of the show where we get a little personal. Um, and this whole conversation, you know, we've had some fun. We've talked about some some pretty cool stuff, some pretty important stuff. You know, how to get better sleep, which is really important to our health. But we have kind of skirted around an issue. Look, I know sleep is a necessity. But as we have said so many times on this show, our modern world is a very unequal world. And for many people, sleep isn't just a necessity. It's it's a luxury. You know, think about the single parents or teachers working two jobs. You know, think about the police officers and laborers working the night shift. Think about new parents with their crying babies. You know, isn't preaching to them that they should get more sleep something akin to telling people in poverty that like they need to have more money? This, what I'll say first is that this book it talks about a sleep revolution, right? That's that's the title of it, the sleep revolution. And what I think is happening in the author's mind is there is a revolution, but what she may not entirely see is that that revolution is happening more in her world than in some other people's. So for example, the Huffington Post, which is uh, the website, the blog that this author founded, installed in 2011 nap rooms in their office. And you can understand from this, from her point of view, why this is important. It's something she believes in. And it's something that she's proud that's kind of taken off in uh, at, at other offices, mostly kind of in the tech world. Um, so at places like Zappos.com, the, sh- the shoe online shoe retailer, um, Nike apparently has an, a nap room now. Uh, so she's she's making this case for a revolution that is happening but it's kind of happening just in the tech world i mean i've never worked for a company with a nap room have you john no uh, i'm just trying to think of how that would go over at school don't even want to go there yeah don't even want to go there so problems abound but 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 look i think I think that there, in her presentation, particularly on the revolution side of things, there is a gap in who is actually doing that. And the cutting edge where that's actually ha- actually happening may be a pretty privileged part of the business world. Yeah. However, yeah. I don't think that the entire issue of getting more sleep is one that divides along class lines. Um, I don't think it is. And, and, the author talks about kind of an interesting dynamic where um, there's this phenomenon of overwork. And we were talking about this earlier, John, where we we like to say that we're busy, that we're slammed. It's kind of a, it's kind of a status signifier that our time... Yeah, a badge of honor. It's a badge, badge of honor. honor. It's, it shows that we're important and that our time is in demand. And this is increasingly true and this is a a change in how things have been historically where the rich had uh, leisure time and that was the way that they showed that they were high status now the rich have no time and that's the way that they show that they're high status Uh, we you know they want to be seen as overworked and you know maybe if you are a a an empire builder in Manhattan, you are a tech titan, you look, you have more control over your time in the sense of I've got a lot of money and and I can do what I want and I can scale things back if I want, but many people don't. So I, I think that this is maybe the difference, that this this is not just a, uh, a rich versus poor, it's not a class thing, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty universal issue that we are all facing right now with uh, this shift uh, where industrialization, where this work culture that we have is, is demanding more of our time and that time is coming from sleep.
All right. Well, well, look. Let's let's close up here. Um, this book, I I know it's about sleep, but it hits a lot of different subjects, and um, it, there's a lot of causes that the book mentions about why we're not getting sleep, and there's a lot of different situations that are unique to people. Um, and and usually the solutions are dependent on those specific circumstances. So bring it home, Ryan. Let's get really universal. You know, what's the takeaway here? What what stuck with you when you closed the book or turned off your Kindle and walked away? What I love about how Ariana Huffington frames all of this is how she goes way back. You know, this is this happens early on in the book. She's putting it all in context and it, it's helpful to understand that we're living in a time that is an aberration in human history. And if you think of our, our bodies having evolved over a long time to deal with a, a specific set of circumstances, it's not crazy to come to the conclusion that we haven't really adapted to this new world. And, and maybe we're making sacrifices to this essential part of our, um, of our being that uh, our bodies can't keep up with. Um, the other big takeaway for me is that sleep and, and dreams and all of this stuff is not just dead time. And, and I think that a lot of people, maybe, maybe people don't intellectually think that. I think most people know that stuff is going on. That's, that's important, but, but it's sleep is treated as kind of a, of a throwaway thing that, and maybe, and maybe with the best intentions that, that, life should be lived and, 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 you know, sleep when you're dead and, and, and why waste time when you could be devoting it to something productive. But, but what is surprising and what science is increasingly discovering is that when you're sleeping, there's a crazy amount of neurological activity going on. Uh, there are, uh, there are analogies that abound in this book, you know, the, the dishwasher analogy. Uh, another one, another one that I liked a lot was, uh, imagine there, there's there's like a Dutch myth of a of a cobbler, like a guy who makes shoes, and and uh, elves come at night to kind of put the the spare parts that he's got on the ground together, and all of a sudden he wakes up and there's and there's you know complete shoes. She might she might have written that after you know 24 hours of not sleeping. <laughs> Did you think she was hallucinating? <laughs> Maybe five <laughs> days or 24 hours somewhere in there. But, but the the point of this is that this is kind of what our brains are doing. Like we've got these fragment, fragments of information that we've collected throughout the day. And sleep is like is like our data processing time. And there's and it's it's our time to make a story and make something cohesive that makes sense about all of these various fragments that we of information that we're collecting. You know, how does this fit into my world? How how does how does why does this matter to me? How does it connect to other things? that I've learned all that stuff happens and becomes whole while we're sleeping and getting enough sleep really enhances that process. So I think, I think between the history of how things have changed um, and between the increasing scientific understanding of how, how important sleep is in ways that we, uh, that we didn't understand. And I think ultimately what's, what's cool about this is that she's advocating a return to something that humans have have done well in the past and has kind of has been shaken up by bigger processes by things like industrialization and technology and she's advocating that at this moment when we're boxed in and we have a million demands on our time that we try to relearn what we used to know just by instinct, right? So, so go back to the basics. Well, Ryan, I've got to say, I know that you said that you don't recommend this book and that we shouldn't read it, but, but it sounds pretty interesting. Thanks for reading it for us, I guess. Far be it for me to stop you. <laughs> well, look, um, will you promise to to read some more books that you don't think we should read and come back and give us this really thorough explanation of them that seems to be a winning formula yeah let's do let's do that i'm gonna start with a list 
of the worst books on Amazon and I'll, and I'll be back to you. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for me. It's getting late, getting tired. Yeah. Get some sleep, man. Yeah. Okay. I think I will. Yeah. Cherry juice. The Nutshell is a production of PRJ Media. If you like us, consider leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter, at Podcast Nutshell. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.